Well, Heavenly Father, thankful for this church body. I'm thankful for the people that you've allowed uh, to gather together uh, in your name. I'm thankful for uh, each one of them that's here. Lord, I know that you love them more than I ever could. Uh, I'm thankful for that. Lord, I'm thankful for the ministry that we're able to do as a church. I think of uh, the different people who've, who've stood up over the years to do things in our congregation. I think of uh, Nicole Scoville this morning and her Gleaners Book Club, the ladies' book club that she leads, and uh, just the ministry that gets to happen in that group as those ladies share their lives together. And uh, Certainly read a book is kind of a, a reason to get together, uh, but the real reason is just that they can uh, love you and love one another. And Father, I think also of Gabe Pock and uh, the other Pocks that came before him and leading uh, the action uh, mind team here at the church and uh, the ministry that they do certainly in evangelism and outreach and sharing the gospel with people, but uh, probably the more powerful ministry that they do is the discipleship behind the scenes as they train up these young kids to serve and then they train these young kids and disciple them in their faith and then they hand over leadership to those kids as they get older that they would train up other young kids and just starting that cycle of discipleship in their lives. Father, I'm thankful for other churches in Cheyenne. As much as I love this church, I love the church and realize that there are Christians gathered together all over the city this morning in various places and uh, each one of them gathered together at a certain extent for the purpose of glorifying and worshiping you. I pray for Zion Congregational this morning and uh, Lord, it's a church that's been here for a number of years. They've had ups and downs like all churches and uh, just at this point in searching for a pastor, Lord, I pray that you would uh, bring to them wisdom and that they'd have insight in knowing what it is you would have them do going forward with their future. Uh, Father, this morning for us again, I would just pray for the word, that as we preach the word, as the word is brought into our lives, that your Holy Spirit would grab hold of the word and do your work, that you would uh, bring these things that we see on the page to be more than just head knowledge for us, that they would be heart knowledge for us, that they would change and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, someone will bring one to you so you can follow along with us. But we are in Mark chapter 4. We're going to be picking it up in verse 35 today. Uh, kind of by way of introduction, I want to tell you about a friend of mine uh, there in the back row. There's somebody back. I have a great vantage point from up here. But uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, I want to tell you about a friend of mine from high school. Uh, I say friend. We probably talked three times in high school. Uh, but they were very important times. <laughs> uh, here's the deal. When I first got into high school, like everybody else, that first week of high school is a little bit scary. We have envisioned in our minds that there are monsters at that school, that there are people there whose only purpose is to cause us pain and hardship. And when we got to high school, we realized it was true. <laughs> that there was uh, for us in our high school, I'm sure no other high schools had this, but our high school, um, and this was the late 80s, so you know how things were, right? There was a little bit of hazing that went on with the new kids coming in. And so uh, they had a couple of different things that they would make kids do. One was they would make them run around the school yelling, beep, beep, I'm a Jeep. I don't know why <laughs> that was so entertaining, but just, just a, here would come this little kid just running down the hall, beep, beep, I'm a Jeep. And there'd be a group of 10 people chasing after him. So he would keep saying it until they stopped chasing. And then everybody in the hallway would be laughing. The other one was uh, we had to do our battle cry. And so we'd have to do this little chant about V-I-C-T-O-R-Y, uh, victory is my battle cry, and run around the church or the school. And, and so it was kind of a little bit scary, and you would see these things happening. But myself and my friends being the tough guys we were, we decided we were going to take our fate into our own hands. We were not going to do that. 
And it was working pretty well before anybody asked, to be honest with you. <laughs> it, was, it was going great as long as nobody asked us to. But that first week of school, we're at our lunch table, and this group of upperclassmen come, and they sit with us. And we thought, well, how nice and welcoming of, welcoming of them to come sit with us underclassmen here at the table. And then they wanted us to do these things in the lunchroom. But again, we had taken our future into our own hands. We were in charge of ourselves. We were not going to do this. And so we sat there and said no, and we were indignant about this. No. And then starting to realize, wait a second, taking our future into our own hands could actually have consequences for us. Uh, and those consequences could be bad as those guys got angrier and louder and were no longer sitting but kind of hovering around us. And at that moment, uh, a guy, a senior by the name of Jackie walks by. And Jackie was uh, the biggest human being I have ever seen in my life. And that's not just the high school me thinking about this. Jackie really was that big. This was a high school kid who on weekends worked as a bodyguard. So he would go to like concerts and he would, and he would sometimes wear his shirt to church or to school and say bodyguard on the front of it. He was just, just this big, massive guy. He would do this thing in gym where uh, some people would like do fancy dunks and stuff. And as a high school, it was like all you could do to get up there. He would like just kind of reach up, grab the backboard and swing across it like it was monkey bars and slam dunks. Just this huge guy. And Jackie walks up behind this group of guys and I'm thinking, oh no, he has joined them. <laughs> but that's not what happened. Jackie goes up to those guys and goes, hey, is there a problem here? And those guys who were so mean suddenly went <gasps> and turned white. And they said, no, Jackie, everything's fine. And he said, it better stay that way. And then he walked away. I was amazed to see that what I was afraid of was afraid of somebody else. <laughs> and what it made me realize is if there was anyone in that school to be afraid of, it was Jackie. <laughs> because all the mean kids were afraid of him. Luckily, he was on my side. I have no idea why he was on my side. Myself and the other kids at the table were like, do you know that guy? Not really. He hardly ever said anything to us other than that one time, just a couple of just quick hellos every once in a while. But we just knew he was on our side. It's kind of like that as well uh, when we think about Scripture to have God on our side. It's described well in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Did you guys ever read that book? Uh, it's described in a couple of different places in that book, but in one, uh, the great philosopher, Mr. Beaver, um, <laughs> is being asked about Aslan, who is... Uh, the embodiment of Jesus Christ in the form of a lion. And he says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Later on in the movie, Mr. Tumnus says, I wouldn't press him on that too much. He's not a tame lion. And then Lucy says, but he's good. Well, that's the picture we have of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is to be feared, but he's good. I say it this way, and then I'll explain it more as we go through the passage. Um, and this is just something I've been trying for a couple of years, and every once in a while I hit well, and every once in a while I don't hit well. But just trying to summarize the verse into a big idea, but trying to make it almost sing-songy and remember-y. <laughs> Remembery is the word I used. Um, but here's what I've come up with for today's passage. When God's power is displayed, we have reason to be afraid 
but our worship should be conveyed. Uh, it's putting us in this proper attitude. Uh, we're going to be looking at this passage where Jesus is going to calm a storm. And certainly uh, the way you hear this preached most of the time is, is accurate to say uh, there are physical and emotional storms within your life, and Jesus is there to calm those storms. But I want us to look past kind of that Sunday school version of this and look at what's really going on, what really happens in the hearts of the disciples. So I'll read the whole section here, starting in verse 35, and then I'll go back and hit some of the details for us. Uh, in verse 35, it says that, On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other bo boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so you've probably heard this passage, the storm that's calmed by Jesus. But let's look at it in detail to see exactly what's going on here. Uh, the first thing that I would note is this phrase, on that day. On that day. It's telling us this is the same day that Jesus has been telling all of these parables. And now it's evening time, so it's on that day, and it's nighttime. And they're about to get on a boat, and it's been a long day, and they're tired. And we know that Jesus is tired, right? Because he gets on the boat, and he falls asleep right away. Well, in the midst of his sleeping, in the middle of this dark sea, up comes this storm, the winds begin to blow, the sea begins to shake the boat, so much so that the boat is taking on water now. That should frighten us, particularly when we understand that the people who were afraid on this boat were fishermen who spent every day on boats. Being on, in boats, being on a rough sea was not awkward for them. This was something they were used to. But you add now to it that those fishermen are afraid. You start to realize that this is quite the storm. Now, this is a, a terrible, terrible storm that they have here. They're surrounded in darkness. The waves are coming into the boat. They're beginning to sink. It's a stormy night. Even the boatsmen are like, whoa, this is bad. And they look over and they see Jesus sound asleep like nothing's going on. It causes them a little concern. They wake him up. Don't you even care that we're dying, Jesus? And then, of course, he rebukes the storm, calms the sea, and says, do you not have any faith? And then they went from scared of the storm to scared of what the storm was afraid of. The storm that scared the fishermen who lived on the sea they were now afraid not of the storm, but of the one that the storm was afraid of. 
That's our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's an uncomfortable thought for us to be afraid of Jesus, but there's a reality to it when you recognize the, the strength and the power of everything here. Uh, their, their question to Jesus, to me, is a little bit alarming. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, they ask this question after this crazy storm is going on. They look over, they see Jesus asleep, and they wake him up, and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Think about the accusation within that. Do you not even care that we're, we're dying here? I wonder how many times, though, Christians have asked that question of Jesus. Uh, when they're sick and dying, when they're struggling, when they're having hardship in their life. How many of us have asked a very similar question? We may not have worded as, as, as expressly as that, but in our heart of hearts going, well, if God, you really cared about me, you'd make sure I had enough to pay this bill this month. And if God, you really cared about me, we wouldn't be scraping for food this month. And God, if you really cared about me, I wouldn't be getting sick. And if God, you really cared about me, the one I love wouldn't be getting sick. And if God, you really cared about me, you wouldn't have let so-and-so die. Because we just get in the midst of the storm. And we can't blame the storm because storm storms, that's what storms do. So who do you blame? We begin to, as they are here, blame God. Think again about what they're saying here. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What are they implying in their question? That Jesus could stop the storm, right? There's at least a certain level there that recognize he could do something about this. They didn't turn to the other fishermen and say, you've been fishing this for 40 years, fix it. You're the best boatsman here. Fix it. No, they went to the carpenter that's asleep in the back of the boat and said, hey, we're dying here. Help us. Now, I don't want us to get in the mindset where we can't ask God for help. It's just the way that they asked. Do you not even care? It's the, it's the attitude behind the ask. I want us to ask Jesus when we have stuff going on in our life. I want us to approach him and to ask him about these things. But the attitude here is just a little bit alarming to me. And yet I wonder, how would I respond in the midst of the storm? I have uh, several fears. I say they're fears. They're not fears. They're wisdom. Um, <laughs> drowning happens to be one of them because I'm not a great swimmer. I'm more of a flopper. I just flop around until I get to something I can hold on to or someone. <laughs> and so the idea of drowning to me is a little bit frightening. Uh, I also don't appreciate heights because when you fall from high places, you land eventually. That's not a fear. That's wisdom, right? And so I have to go through this little thing, this little mantra in my head every time I get on an airplane. When I get on an airplane, I always pray this prayer, Lord, I realize that everything we are doing here is dumb. <laughs> we have strapped ourselves to rockets. We're going to fly 30,000 feet in the air at 500 miles an hour and then try to gently land on the other side. This is dumb. <laughs> but I'm in a hurry and I don't want to drive. Lord, I trust you. If today is the day I die... I trust you. 
And then I close my eyes and I go to sleep. So I don't have to think about the plane or talk to the people around me. <laughs> it's just been my way. But I wonder if that plane started to go down. Do you ever like plan for emergencies? How do you plan for a plane going down? You pray. <laughs> I've actually thought about that. About every time we hit turbulence, I think, what happens next? What's my response? And of course, being the man of God that I am, in my mind right now, my response is always, I will trust God, and I will start shouting Romans 10-9 at the top of my lungs so that everybody on that plane has a chance to be saved before they go squish on the ground. That's how I've played it out in my mind, I promise you, probably a hundred times. I'm planning for my own demise. I'm preparing myself to go through this type of thing. But here's the thing about when I plan my demise. When I plan my demise, it's always sudden. I'm in a dark alley and somebody asks for my wallet, and just like in the school, I wasn't going to do my battle cry, I'm not giving you the $2.17 in my wallet. And then I get shot in the face and I die. <laughs> it's always very sudden, right? Like this is how, I'm going out in a blaze of glory. I don't know how yet, but that's how I have it all planned out in my mind. But what if it's not like that? I haven't planned for that yet. And here we see these guys who are fishermen trying to take this seven-mile boat thing. I don't think they planned for their boat to go down that day. And they're just lashing out in fear. And their fear is real. It's real. It's making them in this moment confront their own struggles, their own weaknesses. I don't know how I would respond. I'll be honest with you, I've, I've practiced a hundred times going down in an airplane. I've never practiced going down in a boat because I don't get in boats that often. I just don't. I do it sometimes, but not that often. And usually it's during the daylight when I can see what's about to happen. And if the, the water's doing this kind of stuff, I have a picnic first. <laughs> I'm not getting in the boat. It doesn't make any sense. It's just not wise. It's not prudent. So I'm bothered by their lashing out to Jesus, but I'm not surprised because I've never been there. I don't know how I would respond. And I don't know if any of us know how we respond. I know this. Um... When my uh, brother died a number of years ago, I know that I tried very hard to be very together and pastoral when I was around people. But I also remember being in my car, screaming at the top of my lungs, banging on the steering wheel, God, where are you? Answer me. I know how I'd respond in that situation because it already happened. I don't know how I'd respond if my boat was going down. In other words, I'm not trying to shame the disciples for being afraid or not responding accurately. What I'm instead trying to do is allow us to see in their circumstances that we might have some work to do in our own hearts and our own understanding of who God is and what he's doing in our lives. That's harder. And look, I realize this, it's, it's weird to be in this position, 
to see the faces of the people in the room because I can recognize that some of you have gone through or are going through those storms right now. I'm trying like to look above people's heads right now because I don't want to like see the person that I know is struggling and be like, oh, that hurt. You know, I'm just like, I just want to look across the top of your heads. I'm preaching to the walls now. Lovely walls, Lord. But I realize that for some of you people right now, this is hitting home, right? Like this is reality. This is tough and this is hard. And now Sean's just going to say, oh, you should be better and just be more faithful and all is going to be fine. That's not what I'm going to say. I'm going to say that we should struggle through this. We should. This is hard. These disciples have seen some pretty impressive things. But they're also going through something there. And so they do end up waking Jesus up. And in verse 39, it says, He got up, he rebuked the wind, and then he said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. I have never in my life seen anything like that. Don't lose for a second that this is a miracle, this is atypical, and this is powerful. And it does it in two parts. I love how Jesus does this in two parts. I don't think he has to. I mean, he's the God of the universe. He could have just been like Fonzie, and it all would have stopped. But he does it in two parts. He rebukes the wind, even though he's not from Wyoming. I've rebuked the wind so many times. (laughs) Not once did it stop. (laughs) but I have let the wind know what I think about it. (laughs) I don't know if it's just because I'm bigger now than I used to be, and so it, like, affects me more. When I was a kid, it was windy in Wyoming all the time. Never bothered me at all. Now it blows right through my body. I can feel the wind in my bones, and I think, why would anybody live like this? (laughs) And so I have rebuked the wind, but the wind has never stopped for me. Jesus rebukes the wind, and it stops. But just because the wind stopped doesn't mean the sea's done, right? The sea's like, I didn't do anything wrong. It was that wind that was pushing me all over the place. So the sea's still doing all of this. And the boat's still going like this. The wind stopped, but all those waves are still going. There's still repercussions of all of that. And so there's this sea's going like this, and then Jesus says to the sea, hush. And then it never seen that. Now, has anybody seen that? Never seen that. That's what makes the next part for me so hard. I've never experienced what the disciples experienced on this day. Never. And so when Jesus says to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? I'm thinking, man, if they can't do it, what chance do I have? Think about this. Now, I think we have to be careful. When Jesus says, why are you afraid? It could be diagnostic, not accusatorial. Accusational? It could be diagnostic, not meanness. I don't know how I want to say that. It could just be diagnostic. Jesus could just be asking the question, so why were you afraid? Let's take a minute and examine the question. Why were you afraid? 
What was it that you're afraid of? I've done that with heights. I know why I'm afraid of heights. Because I don't like bouncing at the bottom of the hill. I don't like pain. And so I just want to avoid it. And I found one of the best ways to prevent yourself from falling from a very high place is to not go to a very high place. Simple as that. It's not complicated math here. But sometimes you find yourself in those circumstances, whether you like it or not. But at least know what it is you're afraid of. In this situation, it doesn't specifically tell us what they were afraid of. But you can kind of look at the connotation of what they were saying. They were afraid that God wouldn't protect them or have their best interests in mind in the midst of this storm. Isn't that ultimately what they're saying? Jesus, do you not even care that we're perishing? Do you not even care that we're dying here? That's what they were afraid of. They were afraid that the one that they were following as Lord didn't actually care about them. And then Jesus asks the second question, not just why are you afraid, do you still have no faith? Which is a little bit insane when you think about it. Think about what these guys have seen. They saw Jesus preaching and everybody went, he preaches as if somebody with authority, like we've never seen before. They saw his amazing preaching. They saw him heal people, sick and dying. Simon Peter saw him heal his mother-in-law. Physical healing. They saw him do those things. They saw him cast out demons. And that the demons had to respond to him. That he had power over the supernatural. They saw him debate with the religious leaders and shut them up and shut them down. They already knew, already in chapter 4 of Mark, a lot of stuff about Jesus. They had seen things that we haven't seen. I, I didn't get to see Jesus face to face. I didn't get to see him heal people face to face. I didn't get to see him cast out demons. I didn't get to see as much as I would have reveled in it, how he shut down the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the scribes, his amazing debate tactics. I'm kind of reading about him and reading about him is cool. But I'm telling you, reading about these things is nowhere near as cool as experiencing them, right? Like I think any one of us would say, I would spend a day with Jesus if I could go back in time and spend a day with anybody. I would probably pick a day based on what I see here in Scripture. Like, that one's pretty cool. I want to see how that went down. But just in general, if I could do, there's all kinds of cool things that happened in history, but I can read about those on the Internet and be fine. This is the one I want to experience, one of these days with Jesus where he's doing these amazing things. These guys lived with Jesus, saw him do these things, and then Jesus has to ask him this question, do you still have no faith? Again, it's rhetorical. He doesn't wait for an answer. I'm not even sure he's saying that they have no faith, but he's helping them see in the midst of this storm the value of the faith that they have there. In the midst of that storm, he wants them to see the value of that faith. 
He wants them to recognize that part of how they respond to their fears is with faith in God and in his character and in his plan. It's been a practice of mine for years now. When I pray, I always, as often as I remember, try to put in there, thy will be done. And for some people, it's a cop-out. They just don't trust that Jesus is going to do anything, but they'll just say, thy will be done, so that at the end of it, if he doesn't do the thing that they asked for, they can say, well, I said it was his will be done. So they don't have to deal with the, the scariness of him not answering the prayers in the way that you want them to. But I'm actually trying to train myself to actually mean that. To actually actually mean, God, I want your will to be done in this situation. And whatever that is, I'm going to do my best to honor you through that. But I have to practice that. I have to force myself to think like that. It's not an easy thing to do. But I think this is what he's encouraging his disciples to do. Now think about it this way. Jesus said to the disciples, Let's get in a boat. We have to get to the other side. And then he goes to sleep. Do you think there was any question in Jesus' mind whether or not they would get to the other side? And if Jesus is who he says he is, if he's God, you can kind of bet that that's going to be a, a done deal, right? In the midst of a storm, the disciples forgot who Jesus was. In the midst of the storm, the disciples forgot how powerful Jesus was. And so they panicked. And Jesus said, wait a second, why are you afraid? They were afraid that he didn't care about them. They were afraid that he couldn't keep his promise to bring them to the other shore. That's what they were afraid of. Now, in this moment, their attitude changes from fear of the storm to fear of the one who commanded the storm to stop. Listen to this. Verse 41, they became very much afraid and said to, the other, to, another, to one another, who then is this? Oh, I've skipped all kinds of slides here. Ignore that one. Ignore that one. I can't even find that one. Where are we? They were very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They, they asked this question, Who is this? Don't you think they already kind of know? Or shouldn't they know? Who is this? The thing is, what they knew about Jesus was impressive and powerful and important, but they still didn't comprehend just how great he is, just how mighty and powerful he is. This isn't the first time this happened in the Gospel of Mark. Turn to Mark chapter 1. This is when Jesus first started teaching. In the middle of his preaching and teaching, you have someone with an unclean spirit, Verse 25, Jesus says to the unclean spirit, similar to what he said to the storm, be quiet. And then the spirit throws this man into convulsions. It cries out with a loud voice and it comes out of him. And then it says in verse 27, 
they were all amazed so that they debated amongst themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Uh, In the same way in chapter four, not what is this teaching, but now who is this teacher? Even the disciples didn't fully grasp how powerful Jesus is. And I would say that's true of us as well. I would say that however powerful we think Jesus is, it's not enough. It's just not enough. He's more powerful than even we can imagine. However powerful we think he is, we still can't comprehend it because we haven't fully experienced the power of God. We've experienced a bit of the power of God. We've read about the power of God. We've heard some of the things about the power of God. But until we fully experience it on that day when we walk into heaven and we're standing before him, I think all of this, you're going to go, whoa. For them, this was a whoa moment, but I don't think even in this whoa moment, they still truly understood how powerful he was. In the same way, when I was in high school, I'm looking at these group of guys and there was this sudden realization that they can take me. And I was afraid of them. When I saw who they were afraid of, whoa. But that's small in comparison to the power of God. Now we hear this phrase, afraid or fear of God, And we don't know how to handle it, really. We don't know what to do with it because we know that Jesus is love. And so why would we fear him? Well, we don't fear him because he loves us. But we do fear him because of who he is, because of how powerful he is. When you come across immense power, it should cause you fear should absolutely cause you fear because you cannot handle it. You can't deal with it. For them, it caused them fear. And the fear here is actually interesting. Uh, There's two different Greek words that are used in this one passage. I'm not going to get into them too terribly much, but let's just say uh, when they were afraid in the boat early on in the passage, that's one Greek word, and it's just, oh, they were afraid. In this one, though, as we get into verse 41, they add to it, it's a new word. The Greek word is phobias, where we get our word phobia. But it adds to it, they were very much afraid. So they were now more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm. Because they realized that Jesus was more powerful than the storm. Now, certainly they're glad that he's on their side, right? He's not a tame lion, but he's good. Of course, he's not safe, but he's good. In other words, we can't deal with the power of God, and we should be afraid of the power of God. Uh, Certainly to the unbeliever, they should be afraid because he's the judge. He has the power of eternal life or the power of eternal damnation. He's the judge. They should be afraid. 
But we in Jesus Christ already know what our future is. But that doesn't change the power of God. Just because it's not directed at us, it doesn't change the power of who he is. So how then do we respond to that fear, that honest, sincere, godly fear that should be there when we comprehend how powerful he is? Let me just show you a number of verses. We're going to trek our way through some scriptures. This is uh, by no means... Oh, there's the slide I meant to show. Here's the slide I'm going to show. By no means is this completely inclusive of everything that the scripture says about the fear of God, but this is just one strain of it that I want us to see. I think an important piece of this concept of the fear of God. Uh, We'll start in Psalm 33. And so this is the only one I'm going to do out of the Old Testament. Uh, The Old Testament is full of them. Uh, but, but sometimes people have this misconception that the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God, that the Old Testament is describing some different things about God. No, it's the same God, and our response should be very similar. So Psalm 33, the psalmist uh, in, in this particular uh, psalm is just praising God, the creator and preserver of people. And then in verse 8, it says this, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world Stand in awe of him. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let them stand in awe of him. The response to our fear is to stand in awe of him. It continues on. We're going to jump forward now to the New Testament. We're in Mark, but if you keep going to the right, you get to Luke. Luke chapter 5. Again, one of these amazing things that Jesus has done. Uh, He's healing a leper. He's healing a paralytic. All of this stuff is going on. And then in Luke 5, verse 26, after all of that happens, when they realize that he has the authority even to forgive sins, in verse 36, they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear. So what was the response? They were filled with with fear. But what did they do in response to that? They didn't cower from God. They glorified God. Because they recognized how he is and how powerful he is and who he is. Start to recognize how holy he is and how set apart he is. Start to understand what all-powerful, all-knowing, all That's a big word for such a small word, all. They started to realize that, and their response was appropriate fear, but their response to that fear was glorifying God. Look again in chapter 7 now. In verse 16. Here he's healing uh, the centurion's servant. Fear gripped them all. This is after a dead man sat up and began to speak. Fear gripped them all. Makes sense. Dead people talking causes a little fear. We, so there was a gal that I used to work with. On the side. I used to work with this gal, and her job was to harvest eyes from dead people. And so when people would die that had done the donor's card, uh, after the family was done, she would then come in and she would harvest the eyes and then in this cooler that she would carry with her everywhere that would look like it was just for her lunch, 
she would take them so that they could be given to somebody else apparently or used for research or whatever. I don't know what they did with the eyes. <laughs> One of her first times, <laughs> she goes into the morgue and she starts to get this guy's eye and he sits up and goes, and then falls back down. She freaks out. She goes to hit the corner. He's not dead. He goes, no, no, it happens all the time. He just has gas. He's dead. Are you kidding me? I would never do that job ever again without a video camera. Because, <laughs> you know. So this is similar here. Dead man speaks. They had fear. But look what happens here in verse 16. Fear gripped them all as it should. And they began glorifying God. Do you see their response? The fear didn't cause them to cower in the corner. The fear caused them to go, he's amazing. Did you see that? They began to glorify God. Acts chapter 19. You can almost guess what's coming, right? Probably not another morgue story, though, so that's good. <laughs> Acts chapter 19, some miraculous stuff going on in Ephesus. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. The proper response to God is to fear him. And the proper response to our fear is to worship him. Not to cower, but to worship. Keep going now. Revelation chapter 14, right before the book of Concordance. In your Bible there. Revelation chapter 14. This is right after the... Uh, prophets of God who had lied dead for a while, come back to life. Oh, no, this is the angel. Sorry. This is a, an angel of the gospel speaking. Verse seven, the angel of God says in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Fear God and give him glory. Do you see the consistent connection in chapter 15, verse four? Who will fear or who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? When you see how powerful God is, your proper response is to glorify him, to magnify his name, to worship him. That's the proper response. And then in verse 19, a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you bondservants, you who fear him. The small and the great. What was the response to that fear? Praise. It's always that connection. It is proper to look at the power of God and how amazing God is and be a little bit afraid, right? It just makes sense. But that fear shouldn't paralyze us it should propel us into a place of worship. When you recognize 
that he's not tame, not safe, but good. When he can destroy you, but he's not going to. Fear leads to praise. Or the way I said it sing-songy at the beginning, when God's power is displayed, we have reason to be afraid, but our worship should be conveyed. See, I'm a poet. Not really. But I want this to be memorable for us. I want it to be not just a bunch of words that we're hearing. I want us to be able to put ourselves in this context and say, this is what happened with the disciples. How can that happen in my life? And be prepared for the storm. Not so you can be afraid of the storm, but when you recognize your fear in the storm, say, wait a second, God is more powerful and more purposeful than the storm. And so I can trust him with that outcome. And when I realize that he's more powerful and more purposeful than the storm, then I should be amazed and a little bit afraid of him, which should cause me not to freak out, but to break out in worship. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and the example that you give us in Scripture. And I pray, Lord, that um, for each one of us, our understanding of your power has gone up a little bit and instilled in us just a, a little bit more of a fear of how powerful you are. But that we wouldn't just stay in that place of fear, that we would honor and worship and praise the God who is mighty to save us. And Lord, we thank you today. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we close in worship today, uh,